Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. You can support this podcast at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. When a brutal murder rocks a small town in Georgia, everyone is shocked. Did the new guy in town do it? Yes, the cops say, and they quickly land him in prison. But then another murder happens, and another. In the end, four bodies, two convictions, and one man in jail for a crime he likely did not commit. Welcome to Murderville. Murderville, Georgia is the new investigative podcast from The Intercept, hosted by Lillian Segura and Jordan Smith. Together, they have more than 30 years' experience reporting on wrongful convictions. In this six-episode series, Segura and Smith uncover what happens when rural law enforcement and state investigators lock up their first suspect while another man is free to kill. Murderville shines an investigative light deep into rural Georgia, where racial lines are as obvious as train tracks, cops are never questioned, and being an an outsider can get you locked up with no chance for justice, even when the evidence could prove your innocence. Murderville, Georgia. Subscribe now on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about true crime, pop culture. And this week, we go to Ada, Oklahoma, and review the latest Netflix docuseries, The Innocent Man. Joining me to get that done, and a whole lot more, is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and triple-certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Meow. (laughs) (laughs) Also with us is our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Good evening, Rebecca. And Merry uh, Christmas, everybody. Oh, <laughs> do your oh, yeah. do your Jimmy Stewart in this It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, Merry <laughs> Christmas, Bedford Falls. <laughs> the old stupid savings and loan. <laughs> Mr. Potter, why you gotta be such an asshole? <laughs> it's very Christmassy with that voice. Yes, uh, did you guys uh, see the Saturday Night Live? We did. Uh, twist on that? <laughs> we did. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do think one of the best skits I've seen on Saturday Night Live this year, really one of the best ones I've seen in recent years, is when Jason Momoa was on and they did the skit with the elf on That's the so shelf. <laughs> Santa, I want another kid. <laughs> that was very good. All right. Well, Kevin, I promised to give an update on the old uh, leg this week. I'll do it briefly because it's boring. All right, right. Broken, Broken leg, leg update. update. <laughs> <laughs> Very dramatic. We were, we're, I were we were coming down to the studio tonight, and I was shooping down on my butt, and then like stood up at the bottom on my crutches. And Kevin was like, "Remember that time you broke your leg?" <laughs> like, nice. You mean a week ago? Yes, yeah. I do. Uh, so basically, I went today, today the orthopedist got my new cast. See, shiny, hard. No, yeah, new. No writing on it yet, and uh, things seem to be progressing well. That's all I have to say. I can't right. say it's going to be linear, but it looks looking pretty good so far. Does that mean we're still going to be able to go to Podex? 
We were never not going to be able to go to PodX. I'm still using a wheelchair in the airport, though. <laughs> no matter what. It's six months away. You might be okay. I think you should ride on that little buggy they take people through on. Oh. Where you sit on the back and everybody has to clear out of the way because yes. like, they yeah. don't slow down it's on like, that It's thing like one of all. those like Disney World trams. People like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> beep, beep, beep. Yeah. Hey, don't get rid of those crutches. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, let's start the show, shall we? Because we have a lot to get to. Kevin, yeah. can you please read this for me? True, True crime, crime update. So some news this week. Retired Manitowoc County Sheriff's Officer Andrew Coburn has filed suit against Netflix and the filmmakers behind Making a Murderer, seeking damages for defamation and how he was portrayed in the documentary. You may remember that in part one of the series, Colburn's actions were called into question around that suspicious call to dispatch regarding Teresa Halbeck's car. Remember that, Kevin? Yes, I do. As well as perhaps uh, that planted key, allegedly, uh, the key fob behind the bookshelf on that search of Stephen Avery's house. Remember that, Kevin? I remember that. One of Colburn's complaints in the suit is that Google searches for his name now yield nearly two million hits, quote, nearly all of them painting him in a negative light. Bukus and bukus. <laughs> While Coburn's suit is limited to the content presented in season one of Making a Murderer, season two star Kathleen Zellner, a.k.a. Stephen Avery's badass attorney, has called this lawsuit, quote, an early Christmas present, Uh pointing out that there was plenty of footage from season two that didn't make the final cut that would have made Coburn look even worse. So the idea that there was malice in the part of the filmmakers doesn't hold water. Plus, she tells Rolling Stone, quote, We are thrilled that Coburn filed this lawsuit because he will have to testify under oath about all of the issues that have swirled around him for years. Everything about the first wrongful conviction will be exhaustively explored as well. Kevin, thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) How would she know that there are things, interviews that made him look even worse? Because she says that there are demonstrations that she did that weren't that didn't make the final cut that had to do with shady stuff he did. That didn't make the final cut of the oh. stuff oh. she did for the filmmakers. Oh, her own interviews. Okay, yes, I see. yes, that makes uh, sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, Let me ask you a more yeah. specific question. Yeah. this is not the first defamation suit regarding a television documentary that we've talked about on the show. Sure, the one from Jean Benet Ramsey's brother against the folks behind that awful CBS special comes to mind. Uh-huh. What makes this different, if anything? He's more legitimately a jackass. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, Laura, I'd love to know what you think. Well, I think the JonBenet Ramsey, case, you know, that story, like they, they definitely painted the brother in a bad light and you could see that it was, I don't know if it was justified or not, but it, it seemed a little more unfair. Whereas in this case, when you look at how all of the evidence collection and investigation played out, it's a little more clear that there was some things that were a little sketchy that he was involved in. So it's a little more warranted. Well, you also see him in his own words in in Making a Murderer. You see him on the the trial. Mm -hmm. You see him testifying on stand. You hear his Mm -hmm. voice. He wasn't five years old at the time. (laughs) Exactly. Absolutely. From a legal standpoint, I can't think of an actual difference. I mean, because I I think it's more about the accusation made by the libeler. Mm Mm-hmm. So I, I I think it's the same standard. I mean, they're neither of them are public figures. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't thrust themselves into the public vortex, mm-hmm. so they don't have to prove malice. Well, quick question though: yeah. Isn't Officer Colburn the officer of record in a criminal investigation? Yeah, but he's and not did a he celebrity. testify in court? No, but he testified in court. So yeah. it's not like they're accusing someone of something that isn't. It's not part of the record. They're not saying like. 
this whole third dude that we didn't talk to and didn't interview is maybe the murderer. I mean, they're not they're not accusing him of a crime. And he's also part of public record of, of this case. Planting evidence? Isn't that a crime? Yeah, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. It's also, you know, libeling him in his profession, mm-hmm. which is a, a term of art where it's one thing to say if Mr. Smith is a child molester, right, you're libeling him in his character and and whatnot. If you say Mr. Smith is a uh, a rotten accountant, now you're libeling him in his profession, mm. and that has repercussions, arguably repercussions about his livelihood and his ability to or you know earn money etc cetera, etc cetera. and so that's a that's something else that you can be sued for so so he's retired I, though i mean he's not oh, like but, you're, but okay this cop <laughs> yeah but i mean if you're going after his uh, his reputation yeah i don't know i mean i think that the standard is still the same toby what are your thoughts about this lawsuit i, I don't know i guess it'll be kind of interesting to see you know i think the filmmakers definitely have a you know a slant i i, I don't know the the legalities about what would make for a successful suit, but it wouldn't surprise me if like he feels and his lawyers feel as though he was not portrayed in a way that was fair compared to, you know, the reality of what happened. But again, he could also just be a crooked cop and (laughs) he's trying to make some money off it. So who knows? But I guess I'm not sort of on the face of it. I, I think I have a little, little bit suspicion about the filmmakers and their point of view. So I'm sort of more interested than I would normally be to see somebody who sort of opposes that point of view have their chance to kind of lay out that case. One thing I thought was interesting was that he has limited this suit to only the first series of Making a Murderer. He's limited, lost it to that. And I wonder, because Kathleen Zellner straight up said stuff about him in the second series. Yeah. She said Officer Colburn did this and Officer Colburn planted this and and Link. Like she named them and said that they did things. And I wonder if limiting it to this first series is a way to avoid being deposed by Kathleen Zellner, who would be a defendant in a potential claim in a lawsuit that involved the second series, or if he's planning on just doing well, a I separate lawsuit. Well, I mean, if he's lawsuit. not suing Kathleen Zellner, then... He's not suing her, because yeah. she yeah. wasn't in the first series. Yeah, but even if he, yeah. he's suing about the second series, he, he's suing the documentarians. Right. He's not suing Kathleen Why would Kathleen Zellner The case Zellner is still the same. Yeah. So he's right. still talking about the same case. I think, I don't know, it could be related to a giant master plan to go on tour with Ken Kratz to, like, <laughs> Comic Con. I don't know. It's true. Or Crime Con. Well, one thing that she. Is that what it was? Crime Con? Yes. <laughs> yeah. One thing that Kathleen Zellner points out is that there was no reckoning for him for the first, the rape trial conviction and exoneration. What his role in that, you know, false. That wrongful conviction was. Mm-hmm. So while a, a lot of focus is about, well, what did he do about the murder and planting stuff? You know, you, you can question whether or not the police did stuff to cover up that murder, but you can't dispute that he was framed for that yeah, rape. He won a lawsuit and so, that said right, he was. Yeah. So what culpability the law enforcement officers in that first arrest have, I, I guess apparently they were never held accountable for that. Right. Because remember that civil suit like disappeared after right. his- his arrest. Well, I just have to say, like, I don't I don't I mean, I have opinions about this. And of course, you know, I'm allowed to have an opinion legally. Right, Kevin? We've covered this in the show uh, before. Yes. If I say it's, how you phrase it, if yeah. I say it's my opinion, my opinion is that if, in fact, he um, 
only included season one in order to avoid the questions that Kathleen Zellner's team might ask him if she were included in a, a suit like this. Wouldn't it be fun if the filmmakers hired Kathleen Zellner to be their attorney to represent them <laughs> in a defamation suit? Just a thought experiment. That might be fun. I don't know. All right, Kevin, can you please read this for me? True Crime Podcast Update. So another piece of news that came out a couple weeks ago, you might remember our review earlier this year of Bundyville, which I believe Toby put on his top podcast of the year list that he tweeted about. Right, Toby? Indeed. Uh, That was an excellent podcast from Oregon Public Broadcasting and Long Reads about those land dispute standoffs and the movement surrounding Clive and Bundy and his sons, Ryan and Ammon Bundy. Uh, There was a political thread to that story. It was clear that much of the fear-based anti-government rhetoric surrounding Donald Trump's president campaign drew people, as this podcast said, quote, itching for a fight to the Bundy cause. Now, as of November, Ammon Bundy has split very publicly with Trump supporters and perhaps with the movement he helped build. The issue is the Trump administration's anti-immigration rhetoric, in particular the pre-election fervor over the so-called caravan that was allegedly set to storm the southern border. In a video posted on Facebook, Bundy said, quote, he's basically called them all criminals and said they're not coming in here. It seems there's been this group stereotype, Bundy said. But what about those who come here for reasons of need? What about the fathers, mothers, the children who have come here? And are willing to go through the process and apply for asylum, et cetera, et cetera. So he has pretty much walked away from his movement. He's expressed a lot of frustration that people who follow him don't see this kind of rhetoric as wrong. And some people find this very surprising that he would take this stance. Toby, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this story. You know, I guess it's a little surprising. You know, his thing is really this sort of bizarre interpretation of the Constitution and what the federal government should have jurisdiction over. For me, it doesn't, if that's like really your beef, it doesn't follow for me that you would necessarily be anti-immigration. It's weird, like the the sort of strong anti-immigration thing seems to be coupled with a lot of people with some other sort of fringe right type of policies, but I don't think that's necessary. I mean, I, I think you can be perfectly consistent in these sort of anti-government beliefs and and still feel like Latin Americans, you know, should be able to seek asylum in the United States. Mm. I, I thought actually that you you had the most interesting take on it, actually. Well, I, would, I just remembered thinking about this in that final episode of Bundyville. We heard that Bundy's next stand might be at this piece of land occupied by a Cuban immigrant. And his wife, that that was where that was, you know, they were saying mm-hmm. this, this could be the next place. These guys are fighting for their water rights. It's a similar situation. Um, this guy was clearly an immigrant from Cuba, a Latino guy. And I remember thinking at the time, like, this could be proved to be an interesting dynamic because the podcast, I think, very interestingly pointed out that a lot of the Bundy followers don't necessarily give a crap about any of the things they care about. They just want to fight. They just, they have guns. They they're protect their guns at all costs kind of people. They're like looking to just be behind something, like some mm-hmm. sort of like messianic figure. And I remember thinking when I heard of this guy and his accent in particular that I don't know how these followers are going to feel about this particular guy to stand with. I just didn't, I, I thought that at the time. And I wonder if that has influenced Ammon's take on this immigration stuff. Do you think maybe? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. Isn't that the way that we sort of like all get over our fears and misunderstanding about different and kinds prejudices. of people? Yeah. yeah. It's like you actually, you know, when you're in school and girls are icky and then you actually like... 
you know, meet a girl. They're not icky anymore. Well, I guess Ammon Bundy spent some time in South America, too, when he was growing up. Yeah. He worked on farms down there. He speaks Spanish. It's not alien to him, the idea of like people coming here from other right. It's not alien. I think it's going to be really interesting as it goes forward um, to see what the ongoing sort of backlash from, you know, all these people that sort of glommed on to his movement that weren't necessarily totally in sync with his particular stance on the government, but saw him as sort of like this, you know, person to rally around with their own personal beliefs that now, you know, are, are going to be quite different from his. It's going to be kind of interesting going forward to see how that all pans out and and where those people land and, you know, how they were talking about, I think at one point in the podcast, all these people that just showed up there when when the standoff was going on, um, when they were out there, you know, and the people that had nothing to do with, you know, land rights or anything, but something else. And they all just sort of, you know, camped out. So I'm interested to see how that sort of proceeds in terms of the reaction to what he said. One of the things that Ammon Bundy has said, and I think it's really interesting, is he said he's always been able to like something. He said something along these lines. I've always been able to like go into these rooms full of people and talk to them and get them to learn my ways. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently they just weren't moving on this. They weren't moving. They couldn't get past repeating those same lines over and over again about like the, you know, the dirt from across the border. They couldn't stop. They wouldn't stop and they wouldn't listen. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that like his breaking point was that like, what do you mean? These people aren't listening. They're not learning. Like what's going on? Like that's interesting to me. All right. We have one more of these, Kevin. Can you please read this for me? True True Crime Podcast Podcast. Update Update. Number Number two. (laughs) Number two is right. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know you guys, I'm I'm, I'm sort of surprising you with this. There was a very big time podcast that just dropped a trailer in the last day or so. So I think we should just all listen to it together. And then I'd love your reaction from the panel. So go ahead and hit play, Kevin. Most serial killers don't make any effort to involve media or investigators. They're very secretive. They don't want attention. They almost want their crimes to go unnoticed. But the idea of committing a crime and then calling up the police and bragging about it, that's a whole nother level of terror. Dear editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Friday, 1st of August, I will go on a kill rampage Friday night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again. The best part of it is that when I die, I'll be reborn in paradise, and all that I have killed will become my slaves. From iHeartRadio, How Stuff Works, and Tenderfoot TV, this is Monster, the Zodiac Killer. That's right. That voice you heard at the end there was our old friend, Payne Lindsay. The podcast Atlanta Monster from How Stuff Works has been rebranded Monster and is coming out with a new season covering the Zodiac case. Kevin, was there anything conspicuously absent from that trailer for you listening to it? Uh, Payne Lindsay? That's right. Yeah. Not a whole lot of Payne Lindsay, so I, I can't help but wonder if this might maybe be a different approach. You know, we know how stuff works. It's a very reputable podcast network. They have a lot of resources. I'm wondering if maybe they're going to tell the story in a different way. I don't know. Would you give this a listen <laughs> is what I'm wondering. Would you give this podcast a listen? 
I might for nothing else just to hear how many synthesizers they can use. <laughs> no, that's that's what I'm thinking. It's like Stranger Things it was. times ten. But that case didn't happen in the eighties. That was not an eighties. I did like the yeah. synthesizers. They were dramatic. I felt like kinda like, ooh, this is very dramatic. <laughs> It's like a porn film. Uh, Laura, you will 100% check out this podcast. I know you. I know that you will. I will. I mean, I am somewhat still totally involved in the Bigfoot world. Um, Oh, goodness. I've been tweeting away with them all week. So if I finish the Bigfoot podcast, I might check this out. Yeah. What do you think, Toby? Will you check out Monster, the Zodiac Killer, or uh, not? I think you should. I really do. What are you going to do, Toby? (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of pressure. Um, bum, 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 <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think the bum, bum, fact bum, that, uh, that this one hasn't actually been solved yet is is probably a bonus. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I I don't want to make any promises. <laughs> well, neither do I. I mean, this is what happened today. Was I saw this trailer came out today? Someone tweeted to me. Of course, I tweeted back something kind of snarky. And then a very nice person that I respect a lot, who works at How Stuff Works, tweeted back to me and was like, "Maybe you'll like it, though." And I'm like, "You know what?" Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Maybe it will be awesome. It could be. Or maybe it won't. <laughs> or maybe it won't. <laughs> All I know is that the music- You won't know, though. It's not right the for the era in which those crimes happened. That's my first criticism right there. I know it's a trailer, but guys, it's like the Zodiac dramatic. killer killed in the 70s, right? It was the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> okay, just checking. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, was the premise that like- DNA and other kinds of stuff now is going to help solve it? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, well, we don't know. Genetic just, genealogy, perhaps? I, I think we're, I, I, we don't even know if it, that's the kind of podcast. We don't is. know. All I know is I heard a bunch of voices in there, people who sounded like producers, reporters. I did not hear a lot of pain except at the, at the very end. And that was already an improvement for me. <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. Well, we'll check it out when it comes out, and we'll make a decision as to whether or not we're going to talk about it on the show. But if it's any good, we definitely will, like 100% for sure. Okay. Okay. Well, moving on, let's get to our main event review for the evening, shall we, Kevin? Let's do that. There's a new binge-worthy true crime series in town. It's called The Innocent Man, and it's on Netflix. Based on author John Grisham's one and only true crime book, this six-part series looks at two seemingly unrelated murders that took place in Ada, Oklahoma in the 1980s. As the series unfolds, a story of wrongful convictions, potential corruption, and bittersweet redemption is revealed, layer by layer. You're giving a statement of your own free will. Did she beg y'all not to hurt her? She was hollering for help and telling us to stop. I thought it was just a dream. If I wrote The Innocent Man as a novel, folks probably wouldn't believe it. Now, one thing that I want our audience to know is that on January 16th, the Netflix podcast, You Can't Make This Up, will be dropping an episode of an interview with the director, Clay Tweel, of The Innocent Man. And it was Kevin and I who got the chance to interview him for that podcast. So uh, if you know if you don't get enough of this conversation with our review tonight, you can check that out in a couple of weeks. That will be dropping. And the other thing that you should know is that we are going to be talking about major plot points for The Innocent Man. So if you want to just remain spoiler free, Jump to the time code listed in the show notes for our up and down review of The Innocent Man. Now, Toby, one of our complaints recently about a lot of Netflix series, I can think of 
pretty much all of them, Making a Murderer Season 2, we said this about, Wild Wild Country, we said this about, is they've been really, really long and, like, dense and stretched. This one was only six episodes. It felt tight to me, and I'm wondering what you thought of the production of this. Did it feel different than some of the other Netflix stuff we've watched, or did it feel the same to you? Uh, no, it, it, was, it was definitely tighter. I, and I'd actually, I, I actually thought about that as I was watching, because there was one point, I can't even remember what it was exactly, I was like, do we really need to be spending time on this? But then I realized that was like the first time I thought that mm. and it was like three hours into it. And so that seemed that seemed reasonable. Yeah, much tighter. Yeah, I thought so too. Kevin, that was a comment that we made the whole time we were watching. Just talk about the production a little bit in general and what you thought of the style of this documentary. I thought that it was edited very well and uh, like we said, very tightly because it, it wasn't something that got dragged into 10 episodes. It felt like this is six episodes worth of a story. I, maybe a slight exception would be the very last episode when there's more of a little bit of, you know, the story is yet to be written yeah. and there's a little bit of that. But, you know, it used the time wisely. There wasn't a whole lot of like, oh, we're going to watch Peppy, the uh, oh, the we'll mother. Oh, talk about yeah. Peppy. We're not going to like have like these long shots of her like trying to, you know, change cook a light chicken bulb. or something. Yeah, <laughs> trying to change a light bulb or carry over her heavy box of tools uh, as she uh, strips copper wire from, you old know, cars. an old car, whatever the hell. I thought that in the very beginning, we were seeing like all these sort of beautiful shots of prairie and churches and it was you know i'm thinking is it going to be that and it wasn't that i mean there were drone shots but there were never like so many drone shots that it became cliche it was not drone porn it did have some um good amount of reenactments but you know i think that they're muted it has like all the elements that you want but nothing that's sort of too much nothing offensive (laughs) <laughs> offensive. Well, I don't know. There was that close-up shot of the ketchup bottle, and that's I was true. like, or "What's the that?" Tater tots. The yes. tater tots. <laughs> it's true. The t- we did see a whole lot of this every time. Well, that's what she was cooking, Laura. That's what she was cooking. I know. Um, now, Laura, I'm curious. You have actually read this book, right? Yes. Who else on the panel has read the book? Anybody? Not me. Not I. Crickets. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to be the one who probably the book was better than the movie. Hmm. Um, so the book was a very different approach. It was much more of a, I read it probably ten or twelve years ago, but as I recall, when I read it, it was it was written you know in a narrative style, a storytelling style. It followed much more the story of the guy who was the baseball player. He was really the central character in the book. the The story revolved around him, and the other stories were sort of subplots. So. I didn't necessarily like the way that they mixed it up. I found it hard to follow because mm. they were jumping back and forth from case to case because I went in thinking, oh, that was a really good book. I liked that book. I liked how it was written. And then the documentary was not told in the same way. And I missed that same narrative approach that the story had um, when I read about it. Laura, I hate to say it. I actually really disagree with you. I have not read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so how can you disagree but with it? I loved the way they wove the two stories together. I thought it was really interesting because, you know, we have these two murders that are at the center of this. as Debbie Carter's yep. murder. She's the one with the tater tots and the ketchup bottle. And then there's the um, disappearance and murder of Denise Hardaway, who was uh, abducted from a convenience store where she was working. You have two sets of convicted guys, the guys who were convicted in Debbie Carter's murder and then the two guys who were convicted in Denise Hardaway's murder. And the, it, it does jump it back and forth a little bit. It kind of in the beginning sort of shows both stories and then it kind of focuses on Debbie and then sort of switches to the Denise story. And I thought this thing was put together so well, in particular in the cliffhangers and the ends of episodes, 
that I was looking for the connections in a way that I wouldn't have been looking for them if they didn't put it together this way. So I I actually liked that. But I want to ask you another question, Laura, because the documentary does start with, you know, basically the Debbie Carter crime. The confessions of the two guys, Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz, the first episode sort of ends in a place where it's like, oh, they did it. Like that's, you know, it's very well set up that way. Yeah. Yeah. But did you do a double take when you heard the defendant's confessions were based on dreams, Laura Bricker? Yes. And I have to say, I still am like, are you really? Um, That that seemed like such a stretch to me that I felt like I needed a little bit more background on that. I mean, we got background, but I was like, um really? And and then when the other, uh, you know, people came up as also being dream related, or one of them did, I think I was like, what is going on in this town? I, I'm still having a hard time accepting that whole storyline. That's nuts. I had a dream that I might have done something. Oh, you're under arrest. <laughs> I, mean, I had like a dream that I was report. washing my hands in a sink. Yeah. I don't know. Why did you think you have that dream? I don't know. Maybe it was the last time you pulled me in here and accused me of killing somebody. <laughs> I went home, felt bad about it, had a bad dream. Plus, I suffer from mental me illness. To- yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's rough. It is rough. I mean, I, I think that the story, particularly of Ron Williamson, which is sort of like the heart and soul of the whole first part of the documentary, sort of the thread throughout, is really tragic. He is one of the two men who was wrongfully convicted of Debbie's murder. He's a former uh, baseball player who suffers from severe mental illness and addiction issues and was seen around town as a, quote, creepy guy. And then as soon as he's convicted of this crime, completely degrades, ages like 100 years in five years and has a complete breakdown. Uh, Toby, what did you think of of Ron Williamson as a character and sort of of the way the documentary laid out the consequences of putting him in prison for this murder? This is something that. I guess we haven't seen a ton of, and, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but the idea of sort of the incarceration of mentally ill people, I guess we saw it with Evil Genius was another one, which is that, you know, if you put somebody who's who's severely mentally ill, you don't provide them with, you know, services or medication while they're in prison. And it's like an inherently extremely stressful place. It's not good. And in both of these, you know, there's two pairs of people who are uh, convicted. And in each case, there's like one person who, quote unquote, doesn't have like issues. And then you have one in each pair, one of whom is, you know, got severe mental illness. And the other one is very learning disabled and comes from a home that seems almost incredibly, you know, depraved. Mm-hmm. And it, and it seems like it was those two. It was the mentally ill person and and then the then the person with the uh, the mental delays, who they talk about having difficult times in prison. Yep. And I guess Central Park Five was was another case where where there was a a, a kid who had you know the same kind of delays who had a hard time in prison. So it, it's sort of this doubly difficult situation where there's sort of easy prey for police who are looking to to pin something on them because they don't have the wherewithal to sort of defend themselves in a way that makes sense. And then once they get put into prison, the sort of stresses of prison and, and their sort of vulnerability just makes it that much worse. Yeah. I actually, it's funny because the Ron Williamson stuff you know, we hear this courtroom tape of him and, you know, the documentary tells us that he like flipped a table in the courtroom and then we hear the tape and we hear him like really 
acting out at his hearings and pushing back. Mr. Williamson, any further outbursts of anger at this hearing will be conducted without your presence. That's fine with me. This is your own personal decision to wave your hand. I'm threatening. He gets mad. I don't know what the lawyer says to him, but he flips his table. <gasps> Court record will reflect that Ron Williamson attempted to uh, overturn a table and go after co-defendant in this matter. We had to be subdued and escorted out of the courtroom. I felt really empathetic toward him. I'm like, that's exactly what I would want to do if I knew that I didn't commit a murder and I were being on trial for it. And he was like yelling and screaming that he was innocent and that he shouldn't have been there, but he wasn't wrong. Yeah, but I think, you know, then that sort of puts him in a light in the courtroom as somebody who's not able to contain his temper, who's flying off the handle. So it's kind of like one of those things like, yeah, it's how you would want to react But what are the repercussions of acting like that in the courtroom? I flipped the table like that once. You did? Yeah. I was so mad because I had done this great barbecue and I tasted it. It was horrible. (laughs) That's not true. I didn't have like the really great meat that I get from Butcher Box. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Nice transition, Kevin. Very smooth. Yeah. Butcher Box delivers healthy 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef free-range organic chicken, and heritage breed pork. You just choose from a variety of their curated boxes, or you can actually customize a box yourself and get just what your family loves. And all that meat is delivered right to your doorstep in individual vacuum-packed biodegradable packaging. I remember we got our box, and this is when barbecue got good again. Butcher Box meat is fantastic. It is not like one of these packaged meat situations where it's like, oh, packaged meat. It is so good. It tastes like you went to the butcher Uh, special to get it. It's so good. Yeah, each box comes with at least 9 to 11 pounds of meat. That's enough for 24 individual sized meals. And you can cook with peace of mind knowing that all butcher box meats come from humanely raised open pasture animals that are never fed antibiotics, hormones, or fatty fillers. And I, I think I can taste the difference. Totally. 100% you can. First of all, this is a great deal as it is, all right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you about the special Crime Writers on Promo. Okay, go ahead. Tell us. All right. What's going on? You could get $20 off your first box Uh and get free bacon. Nice. Throw some free bacon. Everything is better with bacon. Everything's better with free bacon. And Butcher Box bacon is bitchin'. It is. It's super good. (laughs) So go to butcherbox.com slash CWO. CWO. And enter CWO. That's butcherbox.com slash CWO. And enter CWO for free bacon. Free bacon. And $20 off your first box. What else you got, Kevin? Well, you know, instead of buying new things, you can head to Poshmark to shop from millions of closets across America. You know, Christmas comes and maybe you've already been, you know, sharing some gifts or maybe there's something you didn't get for yourself. Forget other people, right? Are you going to buy for yourself? I bought a Christmas gift on Poshmark. I'm just telling you that right now. For yourself or somebody else? For my mom. Yeah, all you have to do is download the free Poshmark app. The shop from tons of brands, from kids, men's, women, there's clothes, there's accessories. I saw all this great sports apparel mm-hmm. that I wanted to get. And, you know, every time I mention that it's like New England Patriot stuff, like you like give me crap. I do, because I think that, you know, you're an adult. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, shipping is super fast and easy for both seller and buyer. Remember, if, you know, this is actually, I think, about it. The best way to re-gift. It's amazing. You know, he's I didn't like this one. Yeah. I'm going I'm to sell it on people, Poshmark. You can buy lightly used things, but you can also buy like things people bought and never wore. Like some of the stuff was in there with new tags. 
Yeah. Like the gift I bought my mother. <laughs> <laughs> when you see something you want, simply make an offer to the seller so you can get the items at a price that works for you. This holiday season, instead of standing in line, you can shop for everyone from the comfort of your own home. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the invite code CRIME5. CRIME5. When you sign up. So just download the Poshmark app, sign up, and enter the code CRIME5. CRIME5. For $5 off your first purchase. All right. We need to talk about Peppy. Can we please do that now? Yes. <laughs> yes, sirree. I had got home from work at 8 o'clock. Phone rung, and it was Dennis Smith. He wanted me to come down and sign some papers. And I said, sign some papers? What? What's going on? He said, well, just come on down, and me and Bill Peterson will talk to you about it. So I went down there. They handed me this paper sign it. I said, well, what's going on? They want to exhume her. I said, no, 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 no. I'm no, we're not going to do that. Laura Brecker. I'll sing you a song just to be like her. <laughs> I know that you had problems with documentary because you're a jerk and you read the book and you think the book is better. I know. Yeah. But did you not love Peggy slash Peppy slash Debbie's mom? Yes or no, Laura Brecker? I loved her. And then there was times where I was like, Ooh, I'm not so sure about that. I loved listening to her talk and I loved when she'd tell stories the way she she was a good storyteller. You know, talking about unfortunately a very dark time in her life when she was leading this double life where she'd go to work and then she'd go buy herself a 12 pack and drive around drinking and singing tunes all night on the old country roads and that was one reenactment I really liked. As drinking and singing and drinking. Shot of the arm coming out of the car, throwing the beer can <laughs> down the wood. It was. And I was like, wow, oh my gosh. She's um you know, so she was really fascinating. And the only part that I got a little bit like uncomfortable with, because I was like, I, I just I couldn't understand. I mean, I, I, I guess I wasn't in her situation, but when they were exhuming the body mm. and she wanted to see the body mm -hmm. and kiss it one more time. And then I told him, I said, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Tell you what I'll do. I'll sign that on one condition. Bill said, what's that? I said, I get to go with you. When you go out there to get her, I thought, I get one more kiss, one more hug, one more kiss. Ooh, um, that body's been down there a while, yeah, Peppy. Yeah. Like, I was like, I, yeah, that made me a little bit like, oof. I, that was the only part. But I, I found her to be a very interesting character, and I enjoyed her scenes. You loved Peppy, right, Kevin? I loved Peppy. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes when you, and we've done this, um, you know, when you're writing a book or you're doing a newspaper article and you end up talking to the family of the victim, sometimes they can be very stoic and it can be kind of a sad thing to have to talk to them. And, you know, when they talk about uh, their loved one's life, it, you know, it can sometimes be maudlin. And Peggy, while you could tell her love for her daughter, she just had this other kind of charisma that came through, even though she was talking about difficult things, which made her very appealing. Mm -hmm. You know, which is not to say that if that she needed to cry more or anything like that. There was absolutely nothing wrong with the way she presented herself. You got to see who she really was. It came through yeah. on the camera as opposed to just taking a regular person and putting them in their you know, kitchen and making them talk about the worst thing that ever happened to them. I do think the interviewing done in this documentary was very skilled. 
Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do these true crime stories where, you know, obviously these interviews were very long because they got like tons of time on camera for all these people. But the interviewer, and it wasn't just editing, it was the way they asked the questions and got them to lay out the story, did it in such a way that, you know, I didn't have, unlike Laura, I didn't know what was going to happen. So like, <laughs> but like Peppy didn't in any way telegraph what would later happen in her earlier interviews about the case. Like it was just very skilled the way that I think that Clay got these people to talk. That's, it doesn't foreshadow that exactly. that you know right. this character is already dead. It was clever editing. Or, yeah, and this also guy's going to get out of jail. Right. Yeah. Uh, Toby, you know, Christy Shepard is another really interesting character in the documentary. Um, Denise Carter's cousin, and, right. And to me, she's very atypical of a victim's family member. We're so used to seeing victims' family members becoming characters in the prosecutorial play, and this woman, Christy Shepard, is completely opposite. You know, she's skeptical. She, you know, obviously there's been a resolution in that case, which probably helps, but her whole life has been completely reshaped by this wrongful conviction. And she's anything but a player in the prosecution side of the story. And I have a lot of concerns about the criminal justice system and how it works. And one of my biggest concern about the criminal justice system is why there is no desire to change the things that we know are the problems. Exoneree families, exonerees themselves, Murder victim surviving family members were all tied together by a common thread of being failed by the justice system. We're all intertwined by our desire to see change so that this doesn't continue to happen. She seems like a smart person who found her cause, right, and was able to, like, I don't know what she does for a living or or whatever, you know, one thing that kind of struck me was the difference, like when the exoneration happens, like how that family just totally accepts it. Mm. That's not what we've seen in the past. That's right. Like generally, I think families have so much emotional investment in the people being on trial and, and being convicted. It's like that is some kind of closure that when it's sort of pulled from you, I think there's this, you know, reflex to protest against it. And, and and to resist it. And then the nephew, Ron Williamson's nephew, who who, who they had on, it, it just seemed both sides of this were compassionate towards the other side and the, the tragedies that they had faced. And that just seemed very, very different than what we've seen in other documentaries. I agree. And the other thing that seemed different was that the judge was willing to listen to new facts and right. dismiss the case. And that the prosecutor, who's not painted as, you know, completely above board great guy, was also willing to dismiss the case. I don't know why he doesn't brag about that more. He seems to be complaining a lot more about his portrayal in the book. Like he should be just bragging about the fact that he did the right thing, I think, <laughs> in that case. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's so moving is that Peppy ends up like forming a friendship with Ron Williamson. They end up having like this like phone friendship. You know, it's like super unusual and really wonderful. But I do think, though, it does tie to the fact that they got the real guy. And so the family knows they got it wrong. I think someone mentioned that, right? I mean, because ultimately they it wasn't that we thought we had justice for our family and now we don't because the person we thought who did it, you know, it was exonerated or was let on on a technicality or something like that, because they until you actually, you know, think, you know, who did it and able to put them away, then there's like no resolution. That's probably one of the, you know, one of the issues uh, with the Adnan Syed 
case. Yeah. Not the legal part of it, but just sort of like the, the, emotions the way people- around it. Yeah. You know, Adnan Syed may have been wrongfully convicted and may get out of jail for that, but that's for, in some people's mind, that's not going to prove that he's not the killer. Right. And so until you can also get him out of jail and then show the who the other person was who did it, it's still not going to wrap it up for a lot of people. Right. Just- just the most famous example that I could think of. That's what Zellner's trying to do the whole time. That's too. right. Right. Absolutely. And the and the you know Heyman Lee's family are characters in the prosecution's version of this story in the Adnan Syed case. It is very typical uh-huh. that one of the reasons why the public can't get behind overturning these potentially wrongful convictions is because the family is so invested in the conviction because they are so pulled in by the prosecutors. It's not uncommon at all. We see it in cases that we've written about, right? Yeah. In fact, Toby, our next Balls Deep Dive book club is uh, a great uh, example of, you know, how the system can, like, do you wrong even when you're innocent. And that's Liliana Segura's husband. What? Really? Little callback. Huh. Little callback. Little We're callback. talking about... Um, Radley Balco. The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist. That's coming out next month. Yeah. We're still releasing our Lost Girls episode this month. We're just waiting for our handsome line producer, Henry Lavoie, to finish it. And we've got, uh, for next month, <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a true crime podcast, OG. What's that? Original Gangster. I know what OG is. Yeah. Bill Rankin. Oh. <laughs> Bill Rankin's going to be on. What? Oh, my God. Can I be on that one, please? <laughs> Sorry. It's gonna oh. be me and Bill. <laughs> oh, are you gonna are you gonna Bill Rankin to Bill's face? I don't think I could do that. It's like when Dana Carvey did it to <laughs> I, President I Bush. Think, I think Bill wants you to. He's heard it. Yep. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I, I want to kick Kevin Flynn's ass. <laughs> hi, I'm come, Kevin Flynn. Hi, come over here. I'll punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. But have we a, digress. We do a digress. I have. I do have one like WTF question that Toby poses on his notes, but that lots of listeners pose in our Facebook group. Uh huh. WTF is it with the court reporter being responsible for those exhibits and sort of shoving yes. them into a storage unit? Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> yes. Talk about taking home some of your work. <laughs> Yeah, it's not right. So I, I was watching that and I was like, huh, that's kind of weird. Because um, usually they store those things in the court where yeah. the court has like a designated locker, not the court reporter. Mm. And then you get to the scene where she just like takes it upon herself to return the belt, which is the suspected murder weapon. Um, while there's still like appeals and, you know, they're still fighting this case. I'm like, huh. Well, they're not. That's the Glenn Gore case. They're not fighting that one. Yeah. So it was just very strange. And I I had never heard of such a thing. So I actually reached out to one of my defense attorney friends and I'm like, "Um, have you ever heard of this? And she's like, no, seems kind of weird to me. <laughs> Usually, and I'm like, okay, so it's not just me. She said, like, yeah, when there's like exhibits and things, or it's a case that's not being, you know, contested and it's resolved, um, sometimes the court will say, okay, you know, after a certain period of time, we're going to destroy the exhibits or whatever, return the evidence. But in this case, it didn't seem to make sense. It just, and and my friend said, I don't think she personally should have had any of that stuff. And I'm like, I kind of. Agree agree it was weird Hmm. like the court reporter not the court it just it didn't make sense to me yeah but where did the dna come from that they tested years later probably that same storage locker yeah probably Mm. which she's going in and like pulling stuff out of bags oh here's this this is here's the here's the rope here's the here's the electrical cord oh here's this thing i'm like what the fuck is this (laughs) but didn't 
in in the dark, didn't they go and find court records in like some abandoned factory? Yes, oh, yeah. that's court records. But this is actually evidence in the case that is still oh, like, so in it's the like, evidence bags. Like that was the part that I was like, what is going on here? So it's not unusual to have court records in an abandoned factory. Like, <laughs> I think uh, it's all <laughs> I'm, it's court records like are usually stuffed away in some sort of boxes and some sort of storage or filing facility. You know, that's that's not unusual. I think that what's so weird about this was that it was the actual evidence from the case. I think it's indicative of how much money a community is willing to spend on its justice system. Yeah. Yeah. Or lack True. thereof. Or lack thereof. Was anybody surprised that the state star witness in the wrongful conviction of Ron Williamson was actually the murderer? Is that fucking bananas, or am I the only person oh, who thinks that's fucking yeah. bananas? <laughs> yeah, it reads like it reads like a shitty detective story. Yes, it's like an episode of Law and Order. The guy who who like said, "Oh, I saw him in the bar, and she asked me to d- rescue her from having to talk to him anymore, and then we danced together." He was the killer. He was. It's fucking bananas. That takes some serious like cojones nerve to get up there yeah. on the on the stand when you did it. What was his yeah. testimony like? Uh, it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is by the I way. I think it was that guy over there, but I, I know it wasn't that me. That guy over there. Isn't this sort of like? A crazy I mean, guy. I mean, I don't want to like add weight to that, but that's kind of what Kathleen Zellner is alleging could have happened in the Teresa Hallback case, right? That oh, one yeah. of his witnesses yeah. is the one who actually did it, which is you know, you're always like that's completely fucking bullshit, and then in this case, that's actually what happened. Yeah. Well, Kathleen Zellner thinks it's like everyone. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, everyone does. That's She's true. like, it's the ex boyfriend plus the two cops plus the the nephew plus the nephew's stepfather Listen, plus fluoride in the guys. water. Listen, Kathleen Zellner could be at one of these conferences. We're going to. So you better watch yourself, oh. Toby Ball. Oh my God. Yeah. She's all nonsense <laughs> and no nonsense. She's no nonsense and all nonsense. If she's going to be there, I'm going to get I'm going to get her a T-shirt that says "All nonsense on the front and no nonsense in the back." <laughs> and so she'll wear it. Now, um, Toby, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the other case, the Denise Haraway case. Of yeah. course, this is the one where Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot were um, convicted, again with another dream confession which was awesome. So they both have this very specific confession that involves a blouse she was wearing, that involves a very specific way that she was killed by being stabbed in the bed of a truck and raped and all this horrible details that they both specifically describe in their dream-fueled confessions. And then later, Denise Haraway's body is actually found. She's wearing something different than is in both of these detailed confessions, and she was killed in a completely different way. Then both of these confessions describe confessions, which, by the way, were the cornerstone of these convictions. Wouldn't you think that the prosecutor might not dig in his heels quite so much, like relying on his conviction when none of the actual crime details in any way match these two completely false but almost identical confessions? Doesn't he say in the in the show that they lied about everything else? Yes. So they probably lied about that, too. This, they told like exactly the same lie. Yeah. So... I guess what the what the uh, film is trying to imply is that they're covering up for somebody who's involved in their the police's drug dealing schemes, so they don't really care. They just want to convict somebody so that their guy doesn't go on trial or go to jail and spill the beans. So my sense is that he didn't really care yeah. that that there was a larger purpose. If you take the the movie at face value. You know, it's not the first time we've seen something like that, right? Right. Where it's like, I've got these guys, and even if the story doesn't quite fit, or even, like, fit really at all, you know, they're still my guys. Right. Kevin, how can it be possible 
that so many horrible men who could have committed this crime, killing Denise Haraway, could also have looked exactly like that police sketch that we saw of those two men. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there was a police sketch. But I mean, it's, it's still kind of not a remarkable likeness for, you know, I mean, it's pretty general for people of that era. With a hair? That location. Yeah. You know, it isn't like some guy with a, you know, a monocle and a, <laughs> and, you know, and mutton chops. It's, you know. A John like, Oates mustache? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, guys in their 20s or whatever, you know, they have like similar features. So it's somebody's artistic rendering of somebody else's memory. Yeah. So, you know, it could be close, but I would never say, ah, it doesn't fit the sketch. So. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about one of uh, the storylines, as much as I enjoy this documentary, that I thought was a little bit of an errant storyline. That yeah. is the introduction of journalist A.C. Shelton, who's trying to do something. Not sure what. <laughs> hey, does Vicki Jenkins live here? Yeah. Hi, are you Vicki? Yeah. Hey, my name is A.C. Shelton. I'm a reporter. I'm working on a story um, about the Denise Haraway case. And uh, I've read to all of the affidavits that you're named in. I was just wondering if you'd be willing to talk to me a little bit about what happened and what you know from from back then. It's been a long time ago. I know. And I don't remember a whole lot. Okay. Laura, do you think that they just wanted a reporter character in this documentary and that's why she was included? Because she's there for some of the interviews, but she never actually produces anything. And we actually see at the end of the documentary that like she hasn't actually written anything about it. Yeah. And she's sort of tagging along trying to find these other suspects, but she never gets out of the car to, to talk to them. What, yeah. what do you think the whole purpose of her inclusion in this story was? I don't know. This was the part that annoyed me the most about this entire documentary. Um, it was like, where did she come from? Um, like, OK, so she's not a crime reporter. If you look her up, she actually writes about like fitness and food. So I'm not really sure. I know I can say at one point, some show that was making a a crime documentary in New England called me up and was like, hey, we have this case, but we want somebody to be the reporter to walk around the town so that we can have you ask questions. And I kind of feel like they might have done that in this show (laughs) Mm. because it was like, oh, okay, now we have the investigative reporter. There was a lot of scenes with her that just felt very awkward to me when I was watching it. And I was like, oof, this just feels uncomfortable watching. And I'd watch kind of like the facial expressions of the body language of like the defense attorney that was handling the appeal. And you could see he was just kind of like, yeah, okay. You mean the guy with the attitude uh, piano, that guy? <laughs> yes. And he, he, yeah, I love that guy. But if you watched him when she was talking and I was just like watching his face, he was just like, okay. I felt like they were trying to incorporate a different dynamic of somebody else interested in the case. But I'm kind of wondering, was she interested in the case before they approached her? Doesn't look like she wrote any articles about the case for anybody. Yeah. So I don't really know why she was there. But to me, it was kind of a distractant because there were some interesting parts about the case. But we were so focused on her traipsing around awkwardly trying to talk to people that it just wasn't for me. I'm not sure why they originally wanted to include her in the production, but I can kind of think backwards about it that they felt that they needed to somehow... I don't know, make contact with or give equal time or a chance for these different people to refute. I mean, I think there was Jim, Bob, and I mean, just the names of the guys were just so Oh, the other suspects in the Denise yeah. Haraway. Jim, Bill, Bob. Billy Charlie. Billy yeah. Charlie. 
You know, hey, it's two oh, first names. Oh, yeah, Toby. Yeah. Odell Titsworth was another one of the names. <laughs> Odell Titsworth is awesome. <laughs> and there was also Rusty the, Featherstone. Uh, <laughs> Rusty Featherstone. <laughs> Again. <laughs> if you made it up, no one would believe no it. No believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was only through her talking to the guy around town who, like, was, you know, old friends with everybody that we are ever it's our conduit to hearing from these other people right these potential suspects it's not like the defense attorney is going to drive around and do that right right now the producers could have done that themselves documentarian documentarians yeah. could have done that themselves and the sh- you know the video of that could have been okay the guy is alone in his car calling up all his friends instead of with the other reporters so i don't know i think like in the end it was like they have this video of her being part of the outreach and the contact to the guys that they need to have. So there was no way to sort of excise her from the whole story. So I think they had to, you know, bring her in so to, to just service that. Is, is she really uncovering anything? I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, mean, I don't had, really think they so. They also had but. a defense investigator who probably had already done that work. So like she didn't, probably was like, I'm not going to do that again. Just well, that the was camera. the part. <laughs> Every time she'd go back and talk to him, I'm like, this guy already knows this shit. Like, he already did this investigation. Like... You know, and I wanted more from him. I love that guy. Uh, he was wonderful. Not for nothing, Laura, but I think Kevin was also called by a production company and pitched on that exact same thing you were pitched on. I think he was. Come be yeah, the reporter like, and walk around and pretend like you're solving this case. Like Connecticut or <laughs> yes. something, wasn't it? And I was oh, just yeah. like, what? <laughs> like, we want you to, like, we want to capitalize on the serial yeah. podcast. Just so you know, and- audience, this is a thing that happens. As a, as a popular story, someone wants to make a series about it and they try to find a body to get in the mm-hmm. car and pretend to investigate it for the yeah. sake of... I mean, this is a thing. That's yeah. A thing. yeah, that's what they wanted me to do. They were like, we want you to walk around I can think town. of some things we reviewed on this show that How were probably you, done exactly that way. How would you like to drive to northern New Hampshire? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say at least her car wasn't as dusty as the girl oh, in the, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's finding more. That's true. But she and I have become friends. Not on as Twitter, much salt so. on the roads in uh, Oklahoma. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Now, just just to sort of like cap this off, there was a theory floated, a sort of central theory about why the Ada police may have given a pass to certain people uh, because there was a drug conspiracy going on within the police department. Do we ever get an adequate explanation of this conspiracy or really like get it laid out for us about no. what was actually going on? No. No. I mean, I think they said that there were cops that were using drugs or buying drugs or maybe buying drugs. And that might have been why they protected some drug dealers and let other people go. But they they, yeah, they really could have fleshed that out a little more. Toby, what do you think? Do you think that was a missing piece in the documentary? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, no, it was just it was just weird. Like, I mean, they kind of like they kind of threw it in there, and I wasn't sure if it was like one of those things where if it, if I was having a conversation with somebody and they kind of left it like that, I'd be like, oh wow, I guess I I should know more about this, and I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they kind of left it out there, and like this might be the thing, but they don't spend any time, you know, trying to explain it or prove it or whatever. So it was weird, quite honestly. It, and when, was, when it was over, I just, it was kind of a head scratcher. I was like, okay, so after going through all this stuff, it probably has something to do with the cops dealing or using drugs. Well, I think the whole subject and the whole theme of Ada in general was something that could have been flushed out a little bit more because they talked about, you know, in Ada, like there was this like disparity between, you know, the people that you were living in extreme poverty and those that weren't. And they had some nice drone flyover of a big mansion at one point. But I felt like that whole storyline in terms of fleshing that out a little bit more never really got moved forward. And then you know, it was the same thing with this, what was going on with the police department. And was it Billy Charlie? 
that was supplying them their drugs? Was I think that so. Who it was? If it wasn't Billy Charlie, it was someone who sounds a whole lot like Billy Charlie. Wasn't <laughs> yeah. Gore? Wasn't Glenn Gore? Glenn Gore wasn't he one too? Glenn, Glenn Gore okay. was part of that. Yeah. So this Allegedly. whole thing with the police department and the guy that was, you know, supposedly supplying drugs to them that they then sort of glossed over when the investigation was going on. You know, both of those stories, I felt like it could have added more, you know, like when we had Making a Murder, we had the same kind of story. And they definitely got more into that whole background of like the family and why the police department didn't like the family and things like that, which which helped sort of bolster the case that maybe this wasn't necessarily a fair trial. Yeah. So can we talk about Bill Peterson for just a second? Totally. What do you want to talk about? Well, I just want to know what people think. I mean... Here you have a, a a prosecutor. At first, you're thinking, "Oh, he's going to do the thing that prosecutors don't often do." Like Doug Evans. Like Doug Evans is like here confronting you with you know evidence of their actual innocence, their DNA testing. Is okay. I won't stand in the way of their release. So Ron and Dennis are let out, and then you have this comes around again, and here we have some Tommy Ward and Carl Fontana. Yeah, and like, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> That guy do it, uh, and just like you know, he, he, there's this, there's this sort of bit of uh, douchebaggery yes. uh, that uh, <laughs> kind of surrounds uh, him. He also has a beef with Grisham, a big beef. He has a beef with Grisham. Yes, I thought I thought Bill Peterson, like he strikes me as a douchebag, but <laughs> like smart enough that he's not going to push it when he's you know when he's had mm. you know like mm-hmm. when when that evidence is there. He's not going to like fight that battle. Like he's smart enough about about picking his battles that it's not going to do something stupid like Doug Evans. I kind of came away thinking he was more smart than like having any kind of principle that would lead him to do something like that. I don't disagree, but I do think that his beef with Grisham was right on the surface. And I think it was super interesting that Grisham was in this. Not because I wouldn't think he wouldn't be, but like... Because it's adapted from his own book? Yes, but you don't see that. You see stuff all the time that's adapted from source material. You don't see the yeah. author sitting there as a talking head, like in the thing, like lording over it. He was one of the too. producers, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Wasn't he like an but, executive? But, yeah. Yes, but he also is sitting there telling you about it in a way. I mean, I, it's not yeah. something... What else have we reviewed like this, where the source material's author sits there as, a, as one of the interviewees? And gets pushback. I mean, you know, the documentarians did bring that one cop on near the end, the old assistant chief, who was like, John Grisham's nuts. He thinks, like, we get up in the morning, like, conspiring to put people away. Like, I've never seen that. You know, so he has he's in this thing. I don't think he told the director what it exactly it had to be, but he's in it. And I mm-hmm. think that's interesting. Am I the mm-hmm. only one? No, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was interesting. Um, I, I I did like hearing from him. Yeah, I actually liked hearing from him more in this than I've ever liked hearing from him in any of like the author interviews yeah. I've seen him do. His jacket suck, though. What are you talking about? That, that, that old like wool jacket. Like he was like trying real hard <laughs> to look authorly. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's a nice jacket. Does it come in your size? <laughs> It's so mean. Yeah. Is this a Latote ad? No, it's not a Latote ad. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do the thing we do. Let's go around the horn and uh, give our thumbs up or thumbs down review of The Innocent Man from Netflix, six-part true crime documentary that is on the front page of Netflix, so I know tons of people are watching it. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Go ahead. Surprise me, girl. What's your review? Oh, boy. So this is one of those times I wish we had like a letter grading system again or something. So I didn't love this, but I think it's because I read the book. Okay. So, you know, I read the book. So I went into it with that as my basis for the story. And it was 
not told in the same way. So that was hard. And I also think for me, it was kind of like, okay, so we've seen like making a murderer. We've had a lot of stories like this. So why tell this story now? This story uh, happened, you know, a long time ago. The book came out quite a while ago. So why now, um, unless we're just kind of capitalizing on this great true crime interest um, that people have now. So I'm going to give a like slow thumbs up because I think people will like this, you know, with the caveat that if you've read the book and you're expecting it to be like that, that's not what it's going to be. And it's only six episodes. So there you go. <laughs> I love when you qualify your thumbs up by saying it's short. So even if you hate it, it'll be over soon, guys. <laughs> it'll be over soon. You know, just close your eyes and, you know, I don't know. Think of a warm, sunny place. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Innocent Man on Netflix? Yeah, I mostly, I, you know, I, I mostly agree with Laura's analysis. It, it doesn't feel super fresh because I feel like we've already, like, dealt with a lot of the issues that come up in this. You know, I, I think it's it's well done. There's, like, less filler than a lot of stuff we've seen. I think the the filmmakers are smart. I give it a thumbs up. And I think it's, you know, it's worth the, whatever, four and a half hours to watch it, but it's not, you know, it's not revelatory or anything. Mm. It's not going to change. If you've like watched or listened to other stuff that we've talked about, I think we've covered most of these issues. I think we have too. And I agree with you guys that it's not like the freshest, you know, sort material that I've ever seen in a true time, true crime documentary, but I really liked it. I'm giving this a big thumbs up because I just think it was really well made. It was a story that, you know, frankly, I kept asking myself questions throughout it. Like, you know, I wonder if this would have been different if the defendants were black. I kept asking myself questions like that that were unexplored in the documentary or, you know, that question. I wonder if, you know, if the family didn't have somebody convicted, if they would if they would be so magnanimous. Like there was some unexplored territory here. But for what there was, like Kevin and I pretty much binged this in one day. At the end of every episode, we were excited to watch the next one. The cliffhanger setups were very, very strong. It was tight. Uh, the expositional stuff was really good. I thought it was just bingeable, entertaining, interesting true crime documentary. I wish more of the stuff we watched was like this. So I'm going to give it a big thumbs up. What about you, Kevin? I'm also a thumbs up. You're right that we have seen these themes before. So this isn't breaking any new ground. But as far as the way the story was told, what the story was, I thought it was really good. And I did enjoy that it was, you know, edited very tightly and so that it, this wasn't uh, a 10-hour thing and uh, the characters were really great. So I'm definitely going to give this a thumbs up. And if you still watch The Innocent Man and you are still upset with the justice system mm. and you still need to rage walk, yeah. you must put on your Rothy's shoes before you go out. What a, what a very good idea. The holiday season means company parties, time with the family, true crime documentaries that'll make you want to walk around the neighborhood and scream at the sky. Why shouldn't you look stylish <laughs> and feel comfortable all That's at the right. same That's right. I've been time? wearing my Rothy's on my right foot for the last week. <laughs> well, they actually sell Rothy's in pairs, yes. so you could get a left one, too. Maybe I'll wear, be able to wear it someday. Well, you, well, you take that cast <laughs> off. There'll be a whole bunch of extra Rothy's hanging around. Rothy's are stylish, classic, comfortable. They come in four fashionable styles. They've got the flat, the point, the loafer, and the sneaker for women and for girls. Wait, there's a sneaker now? i got to check that out. There's the sneaker. Got to check it out. Yeah, best of all, they're made from recycled plastic water bottles, which makes it hard to believe because they are the softest shoe you'll put on your feet. Rage Walker, Laura Bricker. Can I get an amen, sister? Amen. And you know what? When you're rage walking and you're mad and you're going to punch somebody, 
you kind of slow down a little bit when you have that nice soft shoe on your foot. It kind of backs you all off a little before you punch somebody in the face. So, <laughs> yes. Oh. Take that, Odell Titsworth and Rusty Featherstone. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. Pow, pow. That'll, that'll get you for setting really, those, though, those innocent names. guys up. You couldn't make them up. If you did, it would be stupid. I know. Oh. <laughs> Jim Bob. Look, right now, Rothy's has an amazing deal for our listeners. If you use the code CRIME, Crime. you'll get free shipping with no minimum. That's free shipping. And free returns and exchanges, which you're not going to use because you're just going to keep them. You love them. Totally. So just go to Rothy's, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com and enter crime to get your new favorite flats and free shipping. This is a no-brainer. Shoes that are comfortable, stylish, and sustainable. And free shipping. Free shipping. Go get yourself a pair today. Rothy's dot com. Promo code crime. Crime. Get this deal while it lasts. What else you got, Kevin? Well, if after all that, you still need to get something off your chest. Mm. You can reach out to a licensed therapist anytime, anyplace with Talkspace. Oh, yeah. We all have very busy lives, mm-hmm. okay? And when you need to you know, go to therapy, you want to set up a time, you know, you got to get to the office and maybe it doesn't fit into your schedule and maybe it just something comes up in your day or at work that you just need to deal with now. That's where Talkspace comes in. Therapy is as easy as sending your therapist a message. Just get something off your chest whenever you need to. Those challenges at work, you can just chat about life. So you don't have to commute to the, you know, the office. You don't have to leave work. No judgments about, I got to go see somebody to talk about this. Read those 10-year-old magazines in the waiting room. Exactly. You do that. No, all you need is a computer with an internet connection or the Talkspace mobile app, and you can improve your mental health. I could use that right now. I'll be really honest with you. Yeah. It's really bumming me out, this whole leg thing. (laughs) Tough. Well, get a pencil, because I'm going to tell you in a minute how you can do that. Uh, Having the therapist simply provides you a designated person for you to talk to who is trained to listen and help you make a positive change, giving you everyday strategies for stress management and living a happier life. So the Talkspace platform has over 2,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing life challenges that we all face. So to match with a perfect therapist for a fraction of a price of traditional therapy, you go to Talkspace.com slash Crime Writers. Crime Writers. And use the code Crime Writers to get $45 off your first month and show your support for this show. That's Crime Writers and Talkspace.com slash Crime Writers. Crime Writers. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime Crime of of the the Week. A judge in Missouri came up with a unique punishment for a convicted poacher. David Barry Jr. illegally killed hundreds of deer, hunting at night, taking the head and antlers, and leaving the carcasses to rot in the fields. What a douchebag this guy was. Authorities say he did this for at least nine years with his father and brother. Conservation officers claim the berries did sell the trophies, but these poachers were primarily motivated by the thrill of the kill. Ugh. Judge Robert George sentenced Barry to nine months in jail and tacked an additional penalty. Call it a Disney meets Clockwork Orange. Barry must watch Bambi once a month as punishment. That means he'll have to watch Bambi's mom rush baby Bambi into the thicket while she takes the bullet over and over again. So here's my question for you, panel. What other creative ways could Disney be used as a punishment or reward in the criminal justice system? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. 
I have to tell you, I am still traumatized by watching Bambi when I was like four or five years old when I saw it at the drive-in theater. Like for years, I couldn't watch that movie. So this is um, quite a unique punishment. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking something with the Mickey Mouse Club and singing. You know, if you're if you're misbehaving, they're going to play that little theme song over and over again at Ooh. night or something um, <laughs> just to torment you. But uh, the Bambi thing, I really don't think you can top that because um, that scene is still so traumatic. That's true. That's true. What about you, Toby? What other creative ways do you think Disney could be used as punishment or reward in the criminal justice system? I say the uh, the seven dwarfs waiting for you in a mud wrestling pit. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Watch out for Sneezy. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? What do you think? I think that uh, when they have a forensic uh, expert testify at court, when he takes the stand, they uh, have Snow White come out and saying, someday my prince will come. Oh, prince. (laughs) Like fingerprints. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Very clever. That's very clever. Very clever. We should probably end it on that note, but before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? (laughs) Yes, we have a dog of the week this week. Uh, Yes, um, because this dog has its little holiday outfit on, and it um, also is an ode to Stars Hollow, which is something I often reference my town being like Stars Hollow. Uh, so Gina Canoose, her little dog is Lorelai, um, named for the character in Stars Hollow in Gilmore Girls. She's a cavachon weighing in at 6.7 pounds of fur. Small dog. Lucky for us, she does not talk as much as her namesake. Yeah. Instead, she's happy learning new tricks and snuggling up with me while I listen to Crime Writers On. And she has a lovely little Christmas sweater on, and she's very, very cute. It must be a really freaking small Christmas sweater for a six-pound dog. Yeah. it's it's my Actually, my cats are definitely bigger because my cats are like 10 pounds now. So, yeah. All right. Well, Laura Bricker, people want to uh, submit their regular-sized dogs to you for Cat of the Week. How can they find you online on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Tony Ball, people want to reach out to you and, I don't know, give you a pat on the back for being such a lovely cynic. How can they find you online? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin, plenty of people want to reach out to you and commiserate with all of the chores you have to do in our house right now. How can they find you online? Oh, God, I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show at Crime Writers On. And you can join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. You can find that by going to our regular old Facebook page. Go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, and support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get access to the Balls Deep Dive book club podcast and Laura Bricker's Rage Walking True Crime Fitness Fun Group. You can also get a free month of Stitcher Premium if you go to stitcherpremium.com slash crime and use the code crime. You'll get access to all sorts of awesome content, including the other podcast I make with Kevin called Married with... Podcast. Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we keep piles of evidence from old criminal cases. Yeah, we do. (laughs) On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you... Later. Later. I got uh, one pre-roll. So you want to just go ahead and do it live in front of all of us? Yeah, do it live in front of everybody. Oh, Kevin. Oh, this is exciting. Don't fuck this up. I won't. (laughs) When a brutal murder rocks a small town in Georgia, every... Why are you laughing? (laughs) Oh, no. Is this another one about the midget crime solver? (laughs) 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 Okay, sorry. No, it's a podcast. All right, sorry. Okay, sorry. Sorry. We'll be serious. 
When a brutal murder rocks a small town. <laughs> what? Why do you have to read it like that? You have your like announcer voice on. Because I'm announcing. Okay. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. This sucks. So All right. Bad. Dead puppies, dead puppies. Okay, go. Murderville, Georgia is. <laughs> Are you having a stroke? Yeah, I am. Uh, <laughs> Does it smell like burnt toast to you all of a sudden? Fuck. <laughs> How many fingers? Uh, I got one for you, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take it again. Partners in Crime Media. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.